Chris, do you remember that time when we submitted a housing element that was a little bit suboptimal and maybe one would say HCD broke our ass? Chris Elmendorf. Don't worry, if you don't know what the housing element is, I'm gonna give you more information on that. Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and then we'll transition into why is the housing element important and what's happening now? Thanks. So I'm a longtime resident of San Francisco, I guess you would say by San Francisco standards. I've lived here since 2005. I teach at the UC Davis Law School, so I am a super commuter, you might say, though I commute in the other direction and typically by train. And I used to be like one of those like kind of disconnected, cranky people who would just send emails into the ether of the planning department saying, please approve this housing project in my neighborhood. Uh, But eventually I became a connected, cranky person who wrote papers about this phenomenon and got really interested in the framework through which California purports to make cities plan for their share of regionally needed housing. And that eventually led me to Laura and many others. And as a resident of San Francisco and a law professor who knows something about this area of law, I took a particular interest in San Francisco's housing plan. Awesome. So that sets us up for you know, this process. So San Francisco and cities across California are currently engaged in this housing element process where the state put a lot of work into figuring out what should be goal minimum numbers for housing production goals for every city across the entire state. And then every city is supposed to put forward a credible plan about how they're going to achieve that housing goal. And the plan gets submitted as a draft. The state agency gives some feedback on it. So for San Francisco, this is round one of probably three rounds of feedback. From what I've heard, San Francisco submitted a housing element. We YIMBYs have been organizing housing element watchdogs who are sort of critiquing these housing elements as they get submitted to hopefully get the most housing possible out of the system. Chris, how do you feel like this is going overall? You know, what's your sort of take on, I mean, we've done this, this is our sixth housing element cycle across California. It's the most productive one so far, you know, but. Yeah, I think my reaction is kind of like yours. You know, I'm not sure. It's a super kludgy process. And there are things that are like really deep in the process that don't make any sense. Like, for example, (laughs) there's nothing in the process. Okay, so to take just a step back, cities are given housing targets at different levels of affordability. Roughly 40% of a region's housing target is supposed to be for housing for lower income people. But the reality is that in relatively affordable metropolitan regions, the reason they're relatively affordable is that there is a crap ton of new unaffordable housing that gets built. And then by virtue of rich people being able to move into that housing, other housing is available and affordable to working class. And those dynamics are just not accounted for at all. The process is completely blind to that. The assumption is that roughly 40% of the population, I guess, is going to live in deed-restricted affordable housing, which 
like it's a nice ideal, but it's not a reality in any market that has affordable housing. So Chris, before you move on, I want people to really understand that what you're saying is when we build, which is something that Yimby's talk about, yes, we need to build a lot of subsidized affordable housing, but when we build maybe what some people in San Francisco have called excessive amounts of market rate and expensive housing, the housing element doesn't give you credit for in the musical chairs metaphor, basically opening up some of those chairs that might then be available. So like it's a regional planning process. And so you might expect that the decisions that San Francisco makes that affect the affordability of housing in Oakland or any other city within the Bay Area would be part of the accounting, but it's just not. So, but anyway, I don't want to dwell on those details. Suffice it to say that the process is sort of in its underlying premises a little weird, but it is the one way that the state has leverage to come in and check up on cities from time to time, now roughly once every eight years, and saying, are you zoning for a reasonable amount of new housing? And is the set of regulations that you impose on new development reasonable, all things considered, given state law and given whatever legitimate objectives you might have locally? And that checkup process is like going for your housing physical. That's a good thing to have. And, well, and it's been a joke previously. I mean, this yeah. is the, this is the first time it's it's quite serious. Yeah, and part of the reason it's been a joke is that Like when you go to your doctor for a physical, the doctor (laughs) actually has the information or is able to get the information that she would need to figure out if you're in reasonably good health. Whereas when a city goes to HCD, the state housing department for its every eight year checkup, like the state housing department traditionally has had no sources of information other than whatever the city asserts about its health. And that's really changed in this cycle in large part because of the organizing of EMB groups. So I don't want to say that there was no involvement of nonprofits and housing activists in previous cycles, but it seems to have been much more limited. And the combination of these ground troops of EMBs who are looking at housing elements and submitting comment letters and saying like, no, that's a ridiculous site. It's never going to be developed. Plus new state laws that give the state housing department a little more authority and I think a just cha- a change in the mood, right, that you see from the governor on down, where both, you know, key legislative leadership, key agency officials, they're all saying, look, you know, we want to row in the same direction, and the direction we want to row is towards more housing. Um, so that rowing now is taking advantage of this existing, somewhat clunky, somewhat underutilized platform, which is the housing element update. Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of the when we try to sort of break down like why do things happen and this is something that I think the YIMBY movement should be incredibly proud of is that kind of getting everybody rowing in in a in a better direction that change in political will where each especially with something this complicated each level of the process each place where accountability is going to be kind of baked into the system the fact that we have Rob Bonta and the Housing Accountability Unit out there wanting to be seen to be taking this whole process seriously. The fact that HCD is putting out political statement. I mean, they're not political, they're mindless bureaucrats, but they, <laughs> they're, 
you know, that I would say like, I like a spicy tweet from HCD. Like I am very here for a state agency, like being like, we're cracking down. It's been great. But all of that, like building a political will and the fact that there's like fucking an audience, that entire creation of that culture and that audience that wants this entire process to be successful. I would agree with you that I think is the fundamental difference between why previous cycles have been unsuccessful in that it was something that was sort of happening with insiders quietly, a planning process no one was paying attention to. And now like, you know, I mean, San Francisco supervisors and candidates for supervisor are all falling all over themselves to sort of issue comments on today's response from HCD to the San Francisco draft housing element. Like that is a news story today. Yes. And that's new. <laughs> All right. So then today, today we did get finally, which I think is kind of fun that so many people are paying attention to, you know, San Francisco being officially declared the worst at permitting housing in the state, which like I've been saying that for a while. Glad that there is an official record now from the state agency, San Francisco, y'all are the worst. But this report, we've got two documents coming from HCD. One is the technical response to the housing element draft that the San Francisco Planning Department submitted. And the second thing is this commitment to do a deeper dive on just how bad is it permitting in San Francisco. Chris, what do you want to start with? Well, they're related, but the second is definitely uh, more novel, right? So we've seen HCD in its comment letters on cities draft or adopted housing elements through this cycle. And I guess I should say this cycle began first with housing elements from cities in the San Diego and Sacramento region. Next came housing elements from cities in the Los Angeles region and the Bay Area whose housing plans are being reviewed now. It comes last in the cycle. So basically by the time HCD gets the Bay Area. It's kind of figured out how the new laws work. It's got a better sense of its routines. So you should expect like higher quality reviews, basically, of uh, housing plans in the Bay Area region than uh, certainly the San Diego or the Los Angeles region. So maybe some of what we're seeing is that. But on Monday, HCD sent its first comment letter to San Francisco, and it went through a litany of things that San Francisco didn't adequately address or addressed in an unreasonable way in its plan. And there were some good things. There were some definitely good things in San Francisco's draft plan. I don't want to just crap all over it. But there was also a lot of crap there, too. And HCD called out the crap. And maybe the simplest way of understanding the crap in San Francisco's plan is that the city has an obligation under state law to plan for some way of achieving housing production of 10,000 units a year over the next eight years which is roughly a tripling of the city's rate of housing production historically. And San Francisco is like, well, we know we need to change some things. We know we've got some problems, but we have this really awesome thing called the housing pipeline. And the housing pipeline consists of all these projects that have been submitted to us to review and consider, many of which we have already approved in principle, or maybe we have development agreements that we've signed on these projects. And this awesome housing pipeline that we have it alone is going to double our rate of housing production over the next eight years. 
Like, and that's wild, right? If you think about it, right? The city is just asserting that there's this pool of projects that are just going to spout from the pipeline and by their own force are going to double the city's rate of housing production without any new housing being approved, right? Like the city could pass a moratorium saying no new projects may be approved for the next eight years. And even with that moratorium in place, we are going to double our rate of housing production, right? That's well, like let me the- also say, meanwhile, the pipeline, we know, it's like while they're saying that out of one side of their mouth, planning is also having to tell everyone that actually the current this year's pipeline is dying, dying, dying. That like basically none of the projects that were in the pipeline over the past like two years are going to be moving forward. Right. So so there's some things that just like really don't pass the the, the laugh test or the smell test in the housing plan, as well as some other good things. Um, and NHCD called out the like significant bad stuff, like the pipeline numbers. David Brockman did a great analysis of past yield from the city's housing pipeline and showed that the city's numbers are just way out of line with what's happened in the past. David, you've so, been called on. Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, sure. So thanks. Thanks, Chris, for doing this and also for all your great advice during this process. Yeah, this has really been a, a team effort with lots of different people pitching in lots of different things. It's been, it's been really inspiring to watch. Uh, the small part of it, one of the small pieces of it I was involved in was this pipeline piece where I had had some familiarity with the city's pipeline data because I had used some of these data sets to build the, the Dean Preston housing graveyard slash NIMBY report, um, working on others for other supervisors. And so I knew some of this data. And um, so I thought, okay, let me just like take a spin through it. And I was actually inspired by a, a Twitter thread that, that Chris wrote where he went through different pieces of the city's kind of draft, I think back in March, was it? And so with some advice from him, I kind of started looking through data and I realized like, wait a minute, you know, essentially more or less what they did. And, and actually in, in subsequent conversations with the city, we, we learned literally this is what they did is, is they basically said any housing that is essentially historically, they, they looked back and they said, any housing that we didn't deny basically counts as if we approved it. So when they look at all this housing and the housing pipeline, they say, okay, we know it's not all going to work out. They essentially discount it by saying, well, like what percent are we going to deny? But there's this vast middle ground of housing that they never formally deny, but they also never approve either. And basically what they're saying is like, oh, like we want to like keep getting credit for that housing. And I think state law is quite clear that they can't do that. And so just going through the historical numbers, what i said is like, hey, if you look, like rewind eight years ago and say that you ran the numbers this way, how many homes do you think you would have built versus how many did you build? And the result is, yeah, like that, that methodology they're using, like way overestimates the number of homes they're, they're actually going to be permitted. And no wonder, because they're counting all these homes that actually don't get permitted, they just don't get denied either. Yeah, I think that this, like for understanding then the implication going forward, it's like if you're sort of a little bit playing with the numbers looking backward about how fast are you permitting housing and how good are you at permitting housing and how likely are you to permit housing therefore going forward in practice that means that the scale of change that was being put forward was pretty minor and now hcd is saying no 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 honey you're going to have to do a lot more upzoning and a lot more permit streamlining. And these are going to have to be very significant changes. And then we get to see the political reaction to that of, you know, I would say you see 
on the one hand, you've got our District 6 candidates, both Supervisor Matt Dorsey and candidate for Supervisor Honey Mahogany are like, yes, I'm down. We're going to like zone for more and do more housing. We've got the mayor saying we need more substantive changes. And then we've got other people who are maybe not game for as many changes, but it does kind of put this back into the political football of is San Francisco going to actually rise to the occasion? Yeah. There's one follow-up on that, which I feel like may be kind of interesting for folks. And Chris, you should jump in if I'm getting any of this wrong, because Chris is really the master of the legal details here. But there was an idea that kind of emerged on the SFMB side. I forget from who. It wasn't for me. But there, there was an idea that emerged when we were looking at these pipeline numbers and, and basically kind of recognized, you know, one tricky thing the city's dealing with is essentially a lot of these numbers come from these development agreements where they might not want to put in writing that they don't think they're going to work out. So the city is actually mm-hmm. like in a tricky place politically of like how to do this discounting in a way that doesn't make a bunch of people angry. It's basically saying like, oh yeah, like let's do this thing. So one of the things that we, in, in the SFMB, in, in one of the letters to HCD and also the city, we suggested they do is something fairly novel that I think HCD had maybe only mentioned one time before to Culver City as something possible, which is basically to say, look, if you don't want to like do the pipeline numbers, like what we think is the right way, The other thing you can do is basically come up with what we call like a circuit breaker or like a backup plan where it's like, okay, sure. You can make the assumption that like you're going to, you're already on track to double housing production. But if you're going to make that assumption, what you need to do is tell us what you're going to do as a backup. If that doesn't actually pan out in the next few years, like as we think it will. And so when I was looking through the draft that was posted, there's this one sentence I'll read from a little bit of it in the HCD's letter. They say, Given the element's reliance on pipeline projects, the element must include programs with actions that commit to facilitating development and monitoring approvals of projects, e.g., et cetera, et cetera, with a commitment to alternative actions such as rezoning if those assumptions are not realized. So that's like just one sentence in this like 18-page document, but that is a huge deal because that is basically a key from my point of view to forcing the city in, in pretty clear, explicit terms, forcing the city to say, hey, if you're going to use these bizarre pipeline numbers, and in my, my read of this letter, Chris, you should correct me if I'm wrong, is HCD didn't, didn't come after them too strongly on like, you need to redo this math. Like, I think the city knows it's wrong and, it needs to, and they just like made an error and they need to redo it anyway. But basically saying, because you messed up so bad on that math, like, it's almost like we don't, no matter what math you do, like, we're not going to trust it. And you need to come up with a backup plan because like, we know you're probably going to lie to us, <laughs> which is which is pretty significant. I, I don't know if Chris is this yeah, not a fair character. Yeah, I think this is right. And this this actually goes to a larger change that is now happening in how HCD views these housing elements. It used to be a one and done model. Like you submit a plan, the plan gets approved. And if the plan is approved like in a timely manner, you're good for the next eight years, you being a city. Um, HCD is now very explicit. And the attorney general's office is very explicit that in its public presentation about housing elements and says a housing element is a contract between the city and the state. And it's a contract in which the city agrees to undertake certain commitments. And in return for making those commitments, the city gets its plan certified and having its plan certified, it obtains eligibility for various streams of state funding. 
and also avoids various unfriendly consequences that would follow under state law if the plan is not approved beyond funding. But with this contract in place... Wait, I have to interrupt you, Chris. Mm -hmm. I want to underscore what a huge change this is. This is going from... We are transitioning from a mutual lie where (laughs) the city puts forward a plan that they know is fake, right? I mean, my favorite clip is still the Cupertino City Council during the last housing element sitting around saying, let's do something that we know won't work. One of the city council members says that's a lie. And the other one says it's been an effective strategy in the past, right? This was like HCD agreed to accept the lies and not really look into them and the cities lied about their plans for housing production to a contract where there are actual consequences for not executing on your stated plan and having a credible plan for achieving these housing goals. I mean, the amount of whiplash cities are are freaking out. I mean, Southern California, where so many of them were rejected, are just like, they're like, you mean we can't just lie this time? I don't understand. I don't understand, Chris. I don't understand. Why can't we just lie? We lied last time. Yeah, you took our lie last time. It's really confusing. And there's this whole professional army of housing element consultants whose job it is to translate this, this completely arcane and bizarro law into a document that HCD will approve, right? And they make their living going to cities and saying, look, we can do what you need us to do to get your housing plan approved and, you know, hopefully not change much in the process. And they've, I think, been completely thrown for a loop too, at least to the extent that they were selling their services on the premise that they would get cities' housing plans approved. Those who signed up to work for Southern California jurisdictions uh, no doubt got some chewing out behind closed doors or maybe even in public, but I haven't seen the TikToks of it. But yeah, I mean, six Southern <laughs> California jurisdictions out of 180 got their housing plans approved on time. And so the consultants are now trying to figure out, you know, what the hell do we have to do? And HCD, frankly, has not been as clear as it might be in setting forth safe harbors or other reasonable ways that would provide assurances to cities that they could get their housing plans approved if they're good plans. But all that said, this larger movement towards thinking of the housing element as a contract between the city and the state, where there's ongoing monitoring of commitments under the contract, but specific things have to happen by specific points in time over the eight-year planning period, that's brand new. And the way that as David pointed out, that HCD handled this pipeline issue in the letter is really in keeping with that new spirit, right? You know, first at San Francisco, show us that your numbers are at least, you know, reasonable, or at least they can be defended in some way. If, if you made just a math error or misclassification, as David, I think, rightly argues, correct that. But even if you have the math more or less right, you're still undertaking this unbelievably speculative venture, which is projecting how many of these projects that have already been submitted will be approved. And your plan should have a backup and we'll check in with you. And if the numbers don't materialize, we want to see that backup implemented. And if it's not implemented, we'll withdraw our certification and then you'll lose your money. So that's that's a new model. Well, and this is sort of both the like, you know, the, the challenge and the promise of housing elements is that every city 
you know, it, it is, this is the local control way. This is the path where every city gets to come up with their own very unique, very special, how are we going to personally achieve these housing goals? And there's a lot of flexibility within that, except then there's guidance. And it's, it's just so complicated that normally what that has meant is that cities got away with you know, sort of fake documents. Now that we have this army of nerds that are poking holes in these housing elements, I think it's the first time where we're really seeing that HCD also has the capacity and the political will to poke holes also in these plans. For San Francisco in, in particular, you know, as compared, there are other cities that have, you know, they're just, they're smaller, they have more simple documents, right? And so the holes that we've seen in other places where like, for instance, they say like, we're going to meet all of our low income housing goals by only building ADUs. You know, that's a pretty easy one to be like, well, that's some straight up bullshit. You know, San Francisco, what's been really, I think, interesting and challenging, and I'm glad HCD is pushing on this, is that the level of complexity, right? You had to go back and demonstrate that the pipeline numbers are flawed, which like, thank God we had a data scientist of David Brockman on the team to do that. But that's really like a big, complicated undertaking to be able to prove that there are flaws in this document that now are then going to mean that our city has to react to it. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so one part of the big picture is this movement towards viewing the housing element as a contract. Another part of the big picture with respect to San Francisco specifically is just like you guys in your like wonderful idiosyncratic San Francisco way have just <laughs> made the world of housing regulation so preposterously complicated that it no longer even serves your own idiosyncratic goals. It's like it's this it's this like monstrous thing <laughs> that nobody can wrap their heads around. Nobody knows how to manage. Planning, planning department can't get projects approved. DBI can't get building permits issued. Supervisors, you know, can't deal with a CEQA appeal. Like, it just seems like San Francisco with all of these immense resources, right, and all of this talent has at the same time created a local regulatory framework with the best of intentions in many ways, right? Trying to preserve these things we love about San Francisco. You don't have to say that. There wasn't um, all good intentions. Okay, okay. okay. Sometimes, <laughs> with sometimes good intentions, right? Yeah, citywide down zoning in 1978, no, not best of intentions, but, but okay. But, 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 but even, things like, even things like discretionary review, which are insane, like have a have a logic to them. Yeah, of course neighbors should be heard when somebody's changing something in their in their building when we're living in close quarters and you know, we're we're neighbors. I don't know. Like there's a but mm -hmm. but, but the accumulation of discretionary review and green design standards and BMR housing requirements and you know impact fees to provide public art or you know whatever else you might <laughs> you might want to provide like we put it all together and you end up with an absolute clusterfuck right and if that's the realization that i think has dawned on hcd and frankly has dawned on a lot of people in san francisco too i mean 
I think you don't have yeah. to look any farther than the statements from the mayor, the statements from Senator Weiner, from Matt Haney, from others. Like, it's not like this is HCD going it alone and saying, look, San Francisco, you know, you've got things kind of kind of bass backwards, right? There's a larger consensus that HCD is is picking up on here and trying to turn into an actionable set of reforms. Just one thing to speak to that, that I think, you know, for those listening who are not as deep in reviewing all the various pieces of these multi-hundred page government documents as we've been at various points over the last few months. Um, I do think one other thing that has, has struck me as someone who never thought they'd be doing such a thing is, you know, if, if you look at the, the draft element from a few months ago that the SF submitted to HCD, there is a lot of analysis in there that is quite impressive, actually. I mean, it's not, you know, we have some extremely talented civil servants. And it's just one example of that, 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 that back and forth with Laura and, and Chris just reminded me about is there's this amazing figure. I think it's like on page 78 or something like that of the, of the housing element, like, like Appendix F or G or one of those things. The city, yes, the city did this study where or they commissioned um, some economic consultants to basically look at if you built different types of housing or if, you, if a developer wanted to build different kinds of housing. So it goes everything from like super low rise to like a new like 40 story condo tower, like everything in between. If you wanted to try to build that kind of development in all the different neighborhoods in the city, like what would the expected return on investment be? And one of the things that you meet we pointed out in our report is if you look in in the city's own housing element like what that analysis shows is that essentially the city was saying hey we're going to take all of these like west side neighborhoods and we're going to upzone them for you know basically mid-rises which i think the dmds are generally like highly in favor of the, the problem is that the city's own analysis showed that like if the zoning changed and you were a developer that said great like here's this plot of land, like, let's put a mid-rise on it. Or say maybe you're a homeowner that's like, great, like, let's turn my single family home and like into a mid-rise. The city's finding was that you would like lose money doing that. And I think so much of the framework that SF city politics is in right now is sort of like based on the assumption that like, well, there's just like an amazing amount of developer profit being made. And like, we need to capture some of that profit back for like public value in the form of what you were talking about, right? Like public art, whatever else. And I think maybe at one time that might've been true that there was like an incredible amount of value there to capture. But like what the city's own numbers are telling you by these like nonpartisan bureaucrats is like, there's currently negative value for most housing in most parts of the city. Like you've captured so much value, like there's, there's like negative value in right? the current policy framework, right? I think that's exactly. the important asterisk to put there. It's like yes. right. you've done captured as much value captured to the point where developers are not going to make money and therefore won't build that. Yeah. Yes. So that's what that I think value capture has become value destruction. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's what I think will be interesting to, to see in the, the next few months because, I mean, I feel like that's the conceptual framework through which so much of that kind of NIMBY side of city politics kind of sees things, at least the ones that I think are better intentioned anyway, is like, hey, we need to be capturing value. And I, I think part of this housing element process is going to have to run up against the reality of like, wait a minute, like there's actually negative value right now. And like, we have to, we actually have to like uncapture some of that value so that it is enough that people would build something. And so I think that's, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out because I think a lot of people's assumptions 
their basic assumptions about like the politics of development in San Francisco are going to have to be challenged by this process going forward, given what HGD is asking for and realizing, wait a minute, actually, like we've made development so hard and we've been so successful at all our different value capture <laughs> strategies, the fees and gray water and everything else that we're in a place now where we actually need to pick and choose like which of those strategies we care about and which we have to jettison because like HCD is basically saying you, you essentially can't have them all. And that's what the city's own analysis shows. Well, and so going forward, this is a real opportunity. And I want to encourage everybody who's listening. The next step of this process is making sure that the planning department, you know, the planning department, you know, the goal, I think, and, and some of the thinking that I've heard from some of the bureaucrats and people in the mayor's office is this is draft one. We handed in our homework a little early in order to make sure we can get negative feedback in order to build political will for a bigger change. I like whether whether that's true or not. I, I like that answer. So I'm going to take it. And the next step is putting forward what are all the policies that are going to be necessary to implement in order to actually achieve these goals? And like, could have been in the first draft, but that's fine. Now it's going to be in the second draft. Like we as pro-housing people are really being asked to put forward what are all the policies that need to be implemented. One of them, obviously, we're already doing with the Affordable Homes Now Charter Amendment that's going to help create a faster buy right permitting process. But I guess Chris, David, and anybody else, you know, this is the time to sort of start throwing what, what changes do we want to see and, you know, how possible is it to get those all in the housing element? I mean, possible slash necessary. So can we talk a little bit about the second letter that came from the state to San Francisco today. Not the housing <laughs> element letter, but I forget what, what the official term of the new investigation is. But I think, I think... I don't know what the official name of it is, but I know what the song is. Somebody's watching you. <laughs> right, right. I think, I think these are connected. So going forward, I think we're going to be operating on three tracks. One track is going to be what sites is San Francisco going to upzone and how much upzoning is San Francisco going to do on those sites. The second track is going to be uh, recalibrating value capture, as David said, right? Ensuring that the stack of obligations that the city places on developers who want to use one of these sites that would be economically feasible to redevelop in the absence of a huge stack of value capture demands, ensuring that those sites can be can be developed. And then the third leg of the stool is going to be fixing the city's permitting process, which just adds a lot of unnecessary uncertainty and delay and thus cost to the development process. And the interesting thing about uh, the third leg of the stool, the permitting process leg, is that there actually are a bunch of state laws that are supposed to guide and constrain the permitting process. That includes the Permit Streamlining Act, which goes all the way back to 1978. 
that includes, la, la, la. Chris, that I includes can't hear you. bizarrely. Chris, we can't hear you in San Francisco. The Permit Streamlining Act doesn't fit <laughs> in San Francisco for some reason. Right, right. That. that includes it includes bizarrely, you might even say, <laughs> the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA, which is notorious for delaying projects, but which also <laughs> includes timelines through which environmental reviews are supposed to be completed. Now, those timelines have proven essentially unenforceable in court, but that doesn't mean the HCD can't enforce them or the governor and the attorney general can't enforce them. There's also, under the Housing Accountability Act, a set of very demanding timeframes through which the city has to give notice to developers of any applicable development standard that a project doesn't comply with or else the project is deemed to comply as a matter of law with those standards, right? In other words, the standard can't be a basis for denying the project. So we have this framework of state law, which San Francisco just hasn't implemented. And, well, let me give an example and, there, Chris, because I think people need to really understand what does this mean? Like, okay, there's so project- here's, a, here's an example. Here's an example, maybe the foundational example. The Permit Streamlining Act says that for every project that is submitted to a city, a city has to make a determination of when the application is complete. Yeah. And that application completeness date starts the clock for all of the obligations under CEQA for how fast you're supposed to complete your environmental review, under the Housing Accountability Act for when you're supposed to give notice of standards that a project doesn't comply with. So. And, and ultimately, under the PSA itself, of the decision to approve or deny the project. But San Francisco just doesn't make that determination. Well, so they're doing that right now with a great project, 2700 Sloat, which when we put this out as a podcast, I'll put, you know, articles about this project and like in the news. It's a, it's a great poster child for this. The San Francisco, it's a great West Side potential, you know, hundreds of units. It's very gasp large for the west side it's supposed to be a home sf project it's supposed to be exactly the kind of housing development that san francisco wants and they're just not having a date that they're willing to acknowledge is when was it actually submitted so they won't actually even put the hearing date on the calendar so that we won't it won't come to planning and it just keeps chugging along in, it's in the pipeline, guys. It's in the pipeline. Yeah, but you know, they don't have to have a, a hearing to deem an application complete, right. right? And in fact, in fact, even beyond that, if the city doesn't make this determination of completeness, an application becomes complete by operation of law after 30 days, right? So like law. There, there is this, this foundational concept which is an application completeness date and everything else in state permitting law is tied to it. And San Francisco is just like, yeah, the ostrich with its head <laughs> in the sand, right? We don't know about application completeness dates. Whatever it is, it's beyond us, right? We're not gonna record <laughs> it. We're not gonna acknowledge it. It just, it just doesn't exist. Oh, except, except on our website, we acknowledge that, in fact, we acknowledge going all the way back to 2001, that our ostrich strategy of compliance with the PSA does not, in fact, comply with state law, right? So, so for more than 20 years, San Francisco has acknowledged that it doesn't comply with the PSA. The San, San Francisco's- Permission Lending Act. Yeah, the Permission Lending Act. Yeah, Sorry. 
sorry. <laughs> the former head of environmental review in San Francisco's planning department now works, I think, for the city or county of Marin. She's an active Twitter presence. She's very public about like, yeah, oh, yeah, I worked for San Francisco. They're so weird. <laughs> no other city or county I've ever worked for doesn't even try to comply with the PSA. Like, like it's just like this, this like weird San Francisco thing. Like, we just pretend this law doesn't exist. Except, oh, we do acknowledge it on our website and we acknowledge that we don't comply. <laughs> so it's that kind of, that's that kind of like absolutely insane combination of, of blatant, and acknowledge non-compliance with, with like no effort for decades to change anything that I think has led the state to say, not only do you have to, in your housing element, come up with a, a really concrete plan and no, not a six to 15 year plan, a zero to two year plan <laughs> for how you're going to get into compliance with all these state permitting laws, but also we're going to launch this parallel investigation about your permitting process so that we're no longer dependent on your representations about how it works or how it will work. But we, uh, that is people in HCD, people in the attorney general's office, will actually go talk to bureaucrats and look at the software the city is using, audit projects, and, and figure out like what the heck is going on. So I do want people to also understand sort of some of the political players in all of this and how this is going to play out, you know, with the board, with the mayor, with the planning commission as a source of power, with potentially David Chu as the city attorney. There, there's a lot of different, I think people sort of, there's this myth that San Francisco has a strong mayor system. And actually what we've done with a lot of our commission structure is made it really hard for the mayor to actually like take thorough actions and to just kind of like do things. And, and the planning department is a great example of the planning department head is hired by the mayor and reports to the mayor at the same time everything has to go through the planning commission where you have the commission is both appointed by the board and the mayor. And there's a lot of places where individual supervisors are having individual conversations about what's happening in their district and able to tap the brakes on both individual projects. And, you know, th there's this idea that we have to get buy-in from everybody before things can move forward, which like, sounds nice, but actually results in absolute paralysis. You know, this planning, putting forward this housing element is going to be this ultimately deeply political argument. This next phase, I think, is going to be more publicly political than the previous phase has been. So any hot takes on that, I think, would be really interesting to hear. I'm sure, David, if you want to, you know, highlight the NIMBY graveyard, do you think Dean Preston's going to be really helpful, David? I don't expect so, but I actually am really curious about this, like predictions about how this is going to play out in SF politics, like what we can learn from other cities that might not be as especially terrible as San Francisco, but I'm sure many of them had to be dragged kicking and screaming. And so, yeah, it's, it's in any, any, any sense of how that's played out would be, I'd be really curious to hear. The only thing I disagree with is I reject the assertion that some of them are not, that San Francisco is the worst. I actually feel like you know, when we look like comparing to, I don't know, Chris, do you really think, I think San Francisco is the most loudly hypocritical in that it says that it's not the worst, 
and we're the worst at permitting individual projects. But then there are other cities that just don't do anything at all. Yeah, I think that's right. Like our zoning is relatively liberal compared to a lot of other cities. But, but I, you know, like I really, I really don't know how this process is going to play out. I don't think anybody does. And San Francisco, I think, is a really unusual case. Maybe this is the, this is the, 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 the like, it really is unique after all, right? But maybe not, <laughs> not just because of the preciousness of the people who live here, but, but because there's such a vast gulf between the mayor and the city's statewide legislative delegation on the one hand and the board of supervisors on the other, right? And David Chu sort of being ideologically, I think, closer to the mayor and the statewide delegation as the, as the city attorney. And this isn't, this isn't a totally surprising thing to have where you have a city council elected from single member districts um, in nonpartisan elections and sort of organized around local territorial concerns and a mayor who's elected citywide and state legislative officials who are elected from larger districts and who are elected on, you know, a range of issues beyond land use, whereas land use is like the dominant thing in, in, in city council elections. But still, it's weird to have like such a great disparity between what the mayor wants and what the the legislative delegation wants and what individual members of the board of supervisors want. And I think part of what we're seeing in San Francisco with this really strong letter from HCD and the launching of this investigation reflects not just that San Francisco has been really bad in permitting in the mechanics of its permitting process and really open about flaunting state law, but also this sort of unusual political dynamic that allows state actors to take action against the city, knowing that they will be reinforced, knowing they will have the backing of a significant political faction within the city, right? Not just like, you know, Yimby activists, bless you, but also Scott Weiner, Matt Haney, Phil Ting, you know, the mayor, David Chu, right? That, that all of those different actors together, they don't like, they can't outvote the board of supervisors. They can't like cut off the board of supervisors exactly. But, but I think they provide a kind of ballast for, for HCD, right? That, that you can think of, maybe you can think of HCD and, and, the planning department in kind of similar positions, right? It's weird, right? But like HCD has got to get a budget from somewhere. Yeah. And and if HCD like really pisses off the state legislature, right? HCD might not be around any longer or HCD might see its budget cut. And and similarly, HCD needs the support of the governor, right? So so like HCD is a political actor and the planning department, they might want to do what the mayor you know, ideologically, members of the planning department might want to do what the mayor wants them to do. But this, but they also like they know the supervisors could potentially cut their budget or could retaliate against them in some way. So they can't just like disregard the supervisors. So I think I think we're we're seeing just a kind of unusual political dynamic play out and and how it ultimately plays out is a little unpredictable. I also want people because I think for for folks who are thinking about these dynamics and nationally there are these kinds of two different strategies that are emerging around how are we going to get cities 
to allow more housing in their communities. And the sort of housing element process is something that's being considered in a couple states. And, you know, I think this is something that I'm like, oh, guys, you know, it, this like setting goals and having local cities then have a local political process where they work through how they're potentially going to achieve these goals. It's just, it's way messier than something like, you know, but, but California rejected a bigger, bold, we're going to have state minimum zoning standards like SB 50, where we're just going to say, here are the rules that everybody needs to follow. You know, there seems to be more political appetite, especially nationally, for this idea of we're going to set goals and have local communities have a local debate. I mean, I don't know why <laughs> when I look at like city council people demanding that they get that kind of opportunity, I'm like, you don't really want that. Like, this is going to be miserable for you. You're going to have to spend the next two, like Connie Chan, supervisor Connie Chan does not actually want to spend the next year of her life trying to figure out how to either not like, you know, these two things, she knows that her constituents don't want to allow more housing, but she also knows that she's supposed to not get San Francisco losing literally millions and millions of dollars in affordable housing funding. Like she's really stuck between a rock and a hard place politically. I do think some of this depends on how credible we think the other stick is the builder's remedy. I would love to hear Chris's thoughts on how likely it is that the builder's remedy would actually come into play because I feel like we've heard at some of these planning commission hearings, like it's, I don't know, reading between the lines, the sense that like, they're never going to approve us anyway, but like, oh, well, we'll just live with it. And I wonder how sustainable would that equilibrium be? Would they really live with that world? And I think in part that depends on would the builder's remedy actually work out? Yeah. I, I mean, okay. So this is a really important question and it's an, a question again, that has an unknown answer, but at least if you look at the paper of this of state law, going back to 1990, the state has said to cities, if you don't have a housing element, you can't rely on your zoning or your general plan to deny an affordable housing project or to render that project infeasible for affordable housing. And this the law, it's a provision of the Housing Accountability Act. It defines today an affordable housing project as one which is 20% low income or 100% moderate income. But so far as anybody can tell, this so-called builder's remedy has never been used successfully. And it did, in the short term at least, create a big uptake in the number of cities that got into paper compliance with the housing element law. Like, it seems like prior to this time, there were like half of the cities in the state just didn't even bother, as David said, like to, to submit housing plans. And after this law was adopted, like, yeah, most all cities are submitting plans and, and eventually getting into compliance. And so it may be that worry about this loss of authority is driving that. But in terms of like, can you actually use this to get projects entitled? That's kind of an unanswered question. And at the same time that the state created this remedy. It also added this provision to the Housing Accountability Act that said, oh, but nothing in this law shall be construed to prevent cities from imposing development standards that are consistent with meeting regional housing need. Originally, it was quantified objectives. Now it's regional housing need. So like, what does this mean? 
how can you, on the one hand, not be allowed to apply your zoning to a project, but on the other hand, not be prevented from applying development standards to the project, at least if those development standards are consistent with meeting regional housing need. And who the hell is supposed to determine, right? Again, assuming you're out of compliance with the housing element law, who else is going to determine a judge, right? That, that like this particular parking requirement is consistent with regional housing need. I mean, it's preposterous. So I think understandably developers have been wary of trying to get projects entitled through this route, but we now have so many other state laws, like the Housing Accountability Act, like SB 35, like the new lot split laws, like the ADU laws, that are themselves creating a new breed of developer, right? So in the olden days, like what was the special talent that a developer had? The special talent that a developer had was glad handing, right? Sometimes there may have been money in the palm of your hand, sometimes not, but you got to be buddies, right, with the city officials who had discretionary authority over your project and got them to want to do nice things for you, either by paying them off or just by being a great guy. And or by donating to, to their special, unique ballot initiative. Anybody right. wants to gossip about all the ways in which that has played out. But if you talk, but if you all talk to, developers are very charming. Yeah. If you talk to lawyers who work in the project entitlement business, like, They'll tell you, well, like, actually, it's weird now because I've got these new clients or at least clients who are who are getting different. And some of my clients just want to be like that guy who was like passing money or smiles. And like, that's still what they do. <laughs> and that's what they're good at. And like, they'll keep doing that for as long as they can make money doing that. But now that these other guys who are like, you know, I just want to get the state law right. I'm going to be an asshole, but I'm going to get the law right. And at the end of the day, the city's going to have to approve my project. And once you have this new breed of like, I'm standing on my rights developers who are working through a variety of other state laws, like they can add a builder's remedy project to their portfolio. Maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't, but it doesn't blow up their business model, right? Well, because, and, because they can piss off a city with the, with, yeah. with the project and it's not going to undermine their ability to get other projects of the type they entitle entitled in. And there's this intermediary stage as well where, you know, Yimby Law and some other nonprofits are entering the space to sue for you. I mean, I think right. I do think there's this bridge period that where the nonprofits are critical to establishing that there is a path here where you can sue and win that is helping increase the amount of bravery and aggressiveness in the developers, helping prove that this like risk assessment can work out. Yeah. So, so all of this like is a way of saying that the threat of the builder's remedy is more credible now than it has been in previous cycles. But it is still extremely uncertain when push comes to shove what courts are gonna do about it. And I think one thing to watch for as we think about like what you know, city attorneys are advising cities or what state officials like Rob Bonta are saying to cities is like, what exactly is going to be the strategy for getting cities that are out of compliance into compliance. And if you look on paper at the housing element law, there was a big bill, maybe not a big bill, I don't know, but a bill that was part of the part of the 15 bill 
package that passed in 2017 that I believe is authored by David Chu, is AB 72, that set up a process that's a multi-year process through which a court can impose escalating fines on a city that is out of compliance with housing element law and ultimately appoint an expert in planning who will write the city's housing element on behalf of the court (laughs) and the court will then adopt it for the city or order it adopted. And if any of you have actually read a housing element, right, it doesn't take a great leap of imagination to figure out the last thing in the world a court wants to do (laughs) is to write a housing element or appoint an expert in planning who will write a housing element. And frankly, the last thing HCD or Attorney General Bonta want to do is to write a housing element and go to court and say, this is the one you should, you should adopt for the city, right? It's just, it's so cumbersome. It's so tedious. There's so many moving parts. I mean, if HCD gave Bonta's housing element for San Francisco to HCD's reviewers for San Francisco, you can be sure they're going to find 15 things that are wrong with it. So that process, which sounds like in principle, like a good one on paper, I just think is going to be impractical to implement. And the alternative to implementing that, I think, is going to be going to cities and trying to get consent decrees in which that is a legal agreement approved by a court in which a city that is out of compliance agrees to be bound in one way or another by the builder's remedy until they get into compliance. And whether cities will actually sign those consent decrees, you know, I don't know. But you can imagine that that if the legislature doesn't step up to the plate, which it might, I mean, the legislature may fix some of the problems of the builder's remedy, that there will be negotiated agreements between cities and HCD and the attorney general's office that a court then approves that kind of flesh out how the builder's remedy can be used while city is working to get the housing plan approved. That's interesting. There's another path that I think that people are sort of already taking of the sort of just third parties suing cities into mandatory compliance, into submitting housing elements that do comply, that is that has sort of been a little bit successful in previous cycles, and I think will be is already being deployed in Southern California right now. That I think is interesting as well. But this sort of like how many sticks and how hard. I mean, the other part that's kind of the stick that will definitely hit is a kind of sad one, which is the denying of funding for affordable housing and a lot of infrastructure. And I, you know, that to me, I'm like, okay, well, San Francisco definitely, there are cities that I don't think want that, right? Like, I don't know, does Cupertino give a shit? What kind of sucks is that the most exclusionary cities are going to say, you know, I don't want affordable housing or infrastructure anyway. <laughs> you know, that's the sort of worst case scenario. But for cities like LA and San Francisco that do want those state resources, that's going to be a very real stick potentially as well, unless they can convince, I mean, this is what I'm sort of ultimately worried about, is are they going to be able to convince oh, well, it's too, it's too terrible to deny affordable housing funding, so you shouldn't turn that off, but then there's no replacement stick. Yeah, but maybe that, maybe that becomes part of a legislative fix as well, where the yeah. legislature strengthens the builder's remedy at the same time as it removes some of the affordable housing penalties. So yeah. we'll see. I mean, there's a lot still to be worked out. I think the most encouraging thing is 
that there's seemingly a commitment or at least a strong signal from the state to really push and see what can be made to work in the framework as it exists. And, you know, problems will be revealed and then those problems can be addressed as they come to light. Yeah, I think let's end there on that on the high note, which is there really is political will in a way that there has never previously been, which does establish this like there's going to be a solution, you know, whether it's going to be the best solution, whether it's going to, I mean, you know, all of planning is in my mind, the talk about fool's errand, right? This is like, we made up a thing called floor area ratio. And then we tried to say that there's some meaning or in these esoteric planning documents. The thing that really matters is that there are elected officials who look around the state and see that it is in their benefit to take bold pro-housing positions. Those people exist at ever-increasing levels of government who want to be seen as the champions of housing. And they are going to be the people who we need to be clapping for every time they put forward something that's going to make a difference. We need to be electing those people. We're heading into November elections. I'm going to do a shout out for, I just did a bunch of fundraising calls helping get money for Sean Kumagai in 8020. He's a legislator who can be pro-housing. And I think this this sea change that we want to see is only possible when we have an active constituency that is building that political will. So that's my high note. Any other high notes to add? I'll just say thank you. I mean, thank you, (laughs) not just to Laura, but to all of the volunteers who've been looking at these housing plans and sending letters and making their voices heard. I think it's really making a difference. Yeah. David, last thoughts? I think what you said is just right, that ultimately this is... It is a legal process on the one hand, but it's also political and that just it, it rests on the foundation of political will. And that's why continuing to do all the work of NSF and around the state to make politicians feel like they have to take this seriously is just so important. The state, the state is not here to save us without us pushing the state to do so. <laughs> yes. All right. Night, everybody. Bye-bye. Hey everyone, Kenneth here, one of the Infill producers. If you're not already a member, go to yimbyaction.org and become a member today. Yimby Action is advocating for the policy solutions we need for abundant, affordable housing and inclusive, sustainable communities across the country. If you believe this work is important and valuable, I really want to urge you to become a supporting member. You can do that, as I said, by going to yimbyaction.org join. Thanks so much.